thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. This week we have a special Q&A show and our panel of experts are going to be taking on your science-related questions, including, if you sneeze with your eyes open, do they pop out? Can animals predict forthcoming earthquakes? And what happens when something gets sucked into a black hole? If you have a gaping black hole in your knowledge, this is the show to be listening to. Stay tuned for the answers. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's meet our panel. Max Gray's a zoologist. He also won his local FameLab final, so he's a good communicator. Zephyr Panoya is an astrophysicist, so he's happy to talk about space science. And our own Georgia Mills is here and specialises in dinosaurs and evolution. Plus, I'll fill in the gaps with any medical questions that you might have for us. First up, Max, here's one that's come in for you. This is Sean from New Hampshire. With many animals, it's obvious the value they add to the ecosystem. But I'm struggling to find the value with ticks and mosquitoes. What value do they have besides ruining the enjoyment of my porch on a nice evening? Indeed. What do you think? Um, well, so the, the problem here is the difference between value to uh, him as an individual versus value to an ecosystem. We don't get a lot of benefit ourselves from mosquitoes, but they feed into the food chain much like anything else would uh, to an ecosystem. There's lots of birds and lots of fish, particularly freshwater fish, that eat the the larvae of the mosquitoes, and then birds will eat the, the adults more. Um, so they do feed into a ecosystem in the same way that almost any other small insect would, but we derive no benefit from them. But then again, we don't derive much from wasps either, at least not the ones that you see, the yellow a, and It's an ones. arrogant belief that we're the important ones, isn't it? At the end of the day, every everything here on Earth is exploiting some kind of niche in the environment where it's it's got its slice of energy and it's trying to defend it and hold on to it and exploit it. Yeah, exactly. That's all you need for, for, the, for the mosquitoes to exist is for, for a niche within that ecosystem to exist and they'll fill it, they'll adapt to, to fit that need. We don't need to need them so much. It's more, and you know, the same thing is true with all diseases. They exist because there's the space for them to exist, not because they're beneficial. It's the female ones that are the, the hungry, biting ones, isn't it? Yeah, the mosquitoes, a, at least. Yes, exactly. The, only the females will actually draw blood from humans. The males essentially fly around, breed and die. So what do the males do. eat then? If the females go for blood, what do the males eat? Uh, so the males only, as far as I'm aware, only really eat as larvae. So when they're a small uh, larvae, which is kind of a tiny little thing that swims around in the water, usually stagnant or Water. And then it'll uh, pupate and emerge as an adult, fly around, breed with the females and then die. Thank you, Max. Georgia, Stephen says, how well can animals tell each other apart and how well can they tell us humans apart? With animals, it really depends on the animal. There's so many of them. But 
If there is a need for an animal to tell individuals apart, then it's likely that this will evolve. So, for example, animals that work together in groups, I think it's been uh, shown that wasps actually have really good facial recognition. And wasps are what... (laughs) As in for humans? Oh, no, of other wasps. Um, I guess that's a study to come in whether wasps can tell people apart. But another example is in cooperative breeding. So that's when a male and a female team up to bring up their young. It really helps if you can remember who your partner is in this kind of situation. So birds have calls to recognise each other, for example, penguins when they meet up. When it comes to telling humans apart, that's less useful for most animals. I think dogs, they've been selected over many years to live among humans. So they're actually quite good at telling us apart by our smell and also by our faces. But for most animals, it's not really beneficial to be able to tell different people apart. I did read a study a few years ago now. There was some researchers who did some experiments on mockingbirds and they found that if they went to these mockingbird nests and aggravated the birds just to annoy them a little bit, uh, the first time they did it, the birds weren't terribly alarmed. The second time the person did it, the birds knew what was coming and they mounted a sort of response to sort of frighten the person away from their nest. The third time they did, they nearly attacked the guy. Then, as an experiment, the researchers sent in another member of the research group who hadn't been near the nest and hadn't been seen by the birds before. She approached the nest and got the same reaction that the guy did the first time he went in, proving that they can tell people apart. So they they obviously do have quite a good ability to discriminate between individuals. And I suppose they are very seeing creatures, aren't they? I mean, Max, they're very good at seeing, but birds have excellent vision, don't they? Yeah, they do. They they have much better eyesight than we do um instead of the the three kinds that we have most birds have four and can see all the way into the uv spectrum as well into ultraviolet light when you say the the cones these are the cells in the back of the eye that convert light into brain activity exactly that now uh, zephyr one for you this is coming from ken murphy and he says is the universe limitless is there scientific proof that space is boundless matter and energy as we observe them are finite the universe we can see apparently began with the big bang so time as we know it had a beginning and is therefore bounded at one end at least but what about the other end so this kind of stuff gets actually very worrying it's even possible that time although it's bounded by having a start that as soon as the universe started it may have instantly been infinite Hang on a minute, how does that work out? How can it be infinite if it's, if it's only just got started? There are theories that it's quite possible that as soon as the universe was born, if you just went in one direction for long enough, you would get back to the same place, that the universe is essentially curved around on itself. Now, it's very difficult for us to see this because the universe now is so very large that we only see a tiny, tiny fraction of it. In our expanding universe, because light travels at a finite speed, the expansion of the universe can actually outstrip the um, speed of light, and there's a finite horizon in which we will ever see or light from us or signals from us will ever be able to get, which is quite a worrying thought if you think about it. And even more worrying, that horizon is shrinking. Our universe expands faster and faster, and that horizon gets smaller and smaller compared to the total size of the universe. So there are literally some bits of the universe that we could never see even if we wanted to. Likely the vast majority. When we calculate things about the universe we use the size of the universe we see as a lower limit but there may be no limit to how big it is it's certainly so big that we're not seeing the overlap as we go all the way around once we also get the question quite a bit people say well if uh, the universe started with the big bang 
and the Earth has only been here for about four and a half billion years. What are these echoes of the Big Bang, this light we're detecting as the cosmic microwave background radiation left over from the Big Bang? Why is it only just going past the Earth now if the universe was here and expanded away from us billions of years ago? How does that work? So the lovely thing about the um, cosmic microwave background is that it's almost completely uniform everywhere in the universe we see. This is actually a really surprising result um, and is the reason we invented inflation because we don't expect it to be uniform in inflation. This is not the kind of inflation that George Osborne is interested in. This is the universe getting bigger, isn't it? Yes, yes. The universe at its start grew incredibly rapidly and then seemed to slow down a lot. And so what this does is makes all of this cosmic microwave background radiation uniform everywhere in the universe. So the light that we're seeing getting to us just now would be exactly the same as a light getting to any other point just now or getting to us at a different point in time. And so hence, uh, the light we're seeing just now is completely uniform. Mind-boggling stuff. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientist or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Georgia, one for you. Gonsi says, can you please explain the relationship, if there is one, between chickens and dinosaurs? Um, Well, the short answer there is that chickens are technically dinosaurs. It's now well established that birds did evolve from dinosaurs. So at one point there were dinosaurs that were smaller, feathered, there's a really interesting fossil called Archaeopteryx, which is a really, it's a, called a transitional fossil. And people sort of see this as quite good evidence that dinosaurs and birds are one and the same, really. And so people say, oh, isn't it a shame that you can't see dinosaurs any, anymore except for at museums? But just go to a local chicken farm. There's dinosaurs, dinosaurs there, avian dinosaurs. Well, I've eaten a few then. Yeah. So you because eat- I've eaten a dinosaur burger, you, you really have. Revenge for Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Also with us this week, joining us from LA, is author Dave Zobel. He's just published a book. Dave, welcome. Tell us about this book. What's it called? You must take a deep breath to say the entire title of the book, Chris. It is The Science of TV's The Big Bang Theory, Explanations Even Penny Would Understand. (laughs) So go on, explain the motivation behind doing this then. Well, the TV show The Big Bang Theory is enormously popular, and um, there's quite a lot of talk about science on that show. The main characters are all scientists of various types, and they occasionally will talk about either their work or their interests or just something they have read recently. They never really explain the science, and that's appropriate because this is – it's a sitcom. It's not a TV show that is – purporting to teach you anything. It's just trying to give you a good time. But all of the science they talk about is legitimate. It's all vetted actually by a real-life professor of astrophysics at UCLA named David Salzberg. He makes sure that it's all real subjects. There are no dilithium crystals. There are no infinite improbability drives or sonic screwdrivers. I thought it would be fun to write a little book explaining some of those science references and just talking about, you know, when the character says, I uh, I was using a laser, let's, you know, what, what does it mean to use a laser when he talks about his noise-canceling headphones? Well, how do noise-canceling headphones work? So I put together what I thought would be a little book, it ended up being almost 400 pages, and I had to leave quite a lot out. Give us a sort of taster then, when you say you've taken on some of these questions and explained them, what sort of treatment have you given them? Well, for example, let's let's take the example of the noise-canceling headphones, which come up a couple of times on the show. Um, in general, they are used by characters in order to drown out the sounds of their roommates making noises with other people. I will leave the rest of that to your imagination. So I start with a quote 
from one of the characters, just a, a scrap of dialogue mentioning the noise-canceling headphones. And then I, I lead in from that to how do noise-canceling headphones work, what is actually going on, the different uh, types of noise-canceling headphones and, uh, and the way they are engineered. And I close with a question that I'm sure your listeners would be interested to ponder, which is that if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there and it lands on a pair of noise-canceling headphones, does it make a noise? <laughs> Answer it for me then, does it? Did you hear me? I just answered it. <laughs> Very good. How has it been received so far? Um, it is flying off the shelves at Caltech. Well, of course, that's earthquake country, so there may be another explanation for that. But uh, there's quite a lot about Caltech in the book, and that's the California Institute of Technology where these characters work. It is a real institute in Pasadena near Los Angeles, and I cover quite a lot of the research that's really going on at the real Caltech. Well, you've got an email here from Terry who asks us, if gravity holds the space station in orbit, why do the astronauts float about inside it then? Ah, why do the astronauts float about? If they just put on heavy boots, wouldn't they be able to stomp around like the rest of us? The brief answer, Terry, is the same reason that when you jump off of a very high building with your keys in your hand, which I don't recommend, as you are descending to the Earth, your keys sort of float up from your hand. They don't stay anchored in your hand. And the things that are in your pockets don't stay anchored there. And the reason for that is because you and your keys and everything else are all falling at the same time and at the same rate. Well, that's what's going on with the International Space Station and really anything else in orbit. You are falling not to the Earth but around the Earth and everything is falling. So it's all falling at the same rate. That's also the reason that uh, when astronauts train in the airplane known colloquially as the Vomit Comet, where they go up and then come crashing down towards the Earth and then at the last moment pull out and go up again and do that over and over and over until everybody has had a chance to see what everybody else had for breakfast, there's that same weightless period. And that gives them 20 or 30 seconds to be able to float around and feel what it's like to be in the International Space Station. Thank you, Dave. I feel much reassured by that. And as we heard a couple of weeks ago, uh, when astronauts are exercising in space, their sweat doesn't fall either. And it sort of hangs around like a sort of malignant miasma, knocking around in the air for other people to wander into and even breathe in and even swallow. Isn't that nice to think you're drinking everyone else's sweat up in space? Meanwhile, we're also going to be taking a look at what the news is and what's been happening in the news. And I've asked each of the team to pick their favourite news item this week. Max, what have you brought in for us? I've brought in a, a couple of things, actually, um, all to do with how chimpanzees think and uh, how that affects the way they live. I've always been fascinated by things that we find in nature that kind of show that animals aren't that different from us. Uh, and in the last couple of weeks, there have been two stories about chimpanzees, which is uh, it's great from my perspective. I find it fascinating. Uh, the first of which is people have been looking at chimpanzees' abilities to understand cooking. Now, chimpanzees don't cook in the wild. They haven't really harnessed the power of the microwave oven or even fire. But they do seem to value cooked food over raw food, and they will kind of keep raw food and put it in a a cooking device that the experimenters gave for them. They'll wait longer for cooked food. They'll wait, uh, you know, they'll they'll give up a larger amount of uncooked food for a small amount of cooked food, that kind of thing. Um, And then on top of that, a different study uh, that's come out of Oxford Brookes University has shown that finally we've found evidence that uh, something called the drunken monkey hypothesis exists, uh, which is something that people have suggested for a while that kind of early apes, uh, the common ancestors we have with apes, had a value for finding alcohol. And this has been to do with it because it's a, a good way of finding fruit because uh, the, the fruit ferments. And then if you look for alcohol, then you find a good source of fruit trees. Um, but they've actually found that groups of chimpanzees in West Africa, they go for 
there's a plant called a raffia palm. And on the top of these palms, there's, the sap accumulates and is open to the air, so it kind of slowly ferments and gets slightly alcoholic, uh, around about uh, the strength of weak beer in the end. And, and people will actually harvest this, and it's sometimes known as palm wine. It tastes revolting, but it is about the strength you of beer, as I said. Uh, I have, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I, I had uh, the misfortune to try some when I was in Africa once. It tastes somewhere between uh, bad eggnog and off wine. But the the chimpanzees seem to like it, and I they think actually I've had some of it in my local, yeah. <laughs> quite possibly. <laughs> but yeah, the, the chimpanzees will seek it out, and they'll they'll go and they'll drink reasonably large quantities of it, seemingly get drunk, and will return. So it doesn't they don't seem to learn uh, not to. What does a drunk chimp look like? Out of interest. I, I, well, I haven't seen one. I, I'm not entirely sure. Sadly, the paper didn't describe it in detail. They just said they become inebriated and left it at that. They sort of beat up their bedrooms and, yeah. um, and, and puke all over the place, perhaps. I would imagine I, I, that some of them would vomit, yeah. So I've loved hearing recently that we've been finding human intelligence to be less and less kind of sacred. Um, and I've seen some great studies on similar things to this. I saw a great one recently, which was that crows can understand poetry. But it seems hey. like... I think that they have the kind of uh, abstract reasoning in some way that they Hang can on understand a minute. How, do, how do you know a crow likes poetry? How, th- how on earth does someone do that? I actually can't remember the details of the study. I'm hoping that what it was was that they gave the crow some terrible poetry, some good poetry, and the crow showed... Uh, preference to the good poetry but it depends what you judge to be good or bad doesn't it that, like also in, in what way is that going to be understanding poetry as it could just be the, the meter in, in a way that is in some way comparable to birdsong there are there are certain frequencies that carry better and, and sound better in in nature mm. going so far as to say they understand poetry mm. might be pushing it <laughs> but my question is um if we are currently doing this chimps understand cooking birds understand poetry is there going to be any test we can do to just say that the intelligence of these animals corresponds to human intelligence rather than this so kind of individual? It has been done with a few things. Uh, this is an experiment called the Theory of Mind experiment. It's basically a test to see whether or not one individual can kind of attribute a so-called state of mind, a degree of empathy towards another individual. And chimpanzees can do this in the way that if there's a, a dominant individual that either can or cannot see where an experiment has hidden some food, the subordinate individual will eat that food if the dominant individual hasn't seen it, but won't if the dominant individual has seen it. And that is used as uh, evidence that the, the subordinate individual kind of understands you know, the, the, the state of mind of the dominant one. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then birds the do that too, don't well. they? Because some scrub jays um, do cache food based on prior knowledge because Nicky Clayton at Cambridge exactly, University yeah. has, has done this experiment where they uh, put these birds in a sort of bird hotel and they know that when they're in the, let's call it the dining room, they get fed in there. But the bedroom, they never get fed in there and that every night they get locked in the bedroom. But in the morning they have the free run of the, the whole thing. And so her reasoning was, well, if they know they're going to be locked up there and they know they're never fed in the bedroom, then maybe they'll hide food in the bedroom when they've got it available in the dining room. And they do. And so they're obviously thinking, wow, I get locked in here and I'm hungry, so I'm going to hide some food in there on the off chance I might need it later, which is kind of neat, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and there's, so there's other examples as well, whether or not under, they understand when an object's been hidden from sight, whether if they know it's still there, which is something called object permanence. And these, all of these experiments have certain parallels, and in some uh, the same experiments have been done developmentally with humans and you can kind of tag it to the rough age of a human child. And so with theory of mind in, in chimpanzees, it, it starts to emerge in humans at the age of four or five. Um, and so 
as far as you can actually quantify it, you can roughly say an adult chimpanzee is maybe somewhere around uh, as smart as a human child. This is The Naked Scientist, and it's our science Q&A show where you ask the questions and we hopefully answer them. This one's come in. Hi, my name is Josh. I'm 12 and I live in Mackay, Australia. I was told by my friend that when you sneeze with your eyes open, your eyes will shoot out. Is this true? And why do we close our eyes when we sneeze? Thanks. Anyone here done the experiment? Anyone tried sneezing? It's almost impossible to do. You can't You can't do it. Georgia, you've got hay fever at the moment. Have you been sneezing with your eyes open? Actually, I was cycling home the other day and um, I was coming up to a junction and the hay fever attacked and I think I had my eyes open and they didn't shoot out, but I can't be certain. Zephyr? Well, I've got a bit of a cold at the moment, so if I sneeze during the show, I'll try and keep my eyes open and we'll do a scientific yeah, test. Try and, right. <laughs> try and sneeze her way, though. Don't sneeze on me. Well, the answer to this is it is a myth. And there's not actually any evidence whatsoever that your eyes are going to leave your head. Be reassured. And I know this as well because I've done the experiment on me. I was driving and obviously it's very unsafe to close your eyes when you feel a sneeze coming on because, and you're driving because you might leave the road. So I forced myself to keep my eyes open. But there is a reflex that does close your eyes. Why should your eyes need to close when you want to sneeze? Well, think about what a sneeze is. When your nasal passages are irritated by something, either something tickling the hairs in your nose, a bug going into your nose, or a virus causing a chemical tickle in your nose, or an allergy, then the nervous system is wired up to cause you to release a sudden rush of air straight down your nose. The idea being that this high velocity, and in fact we've measured the speed of a sneeze on the naked scientist, it's about 100 miles per hour goes at. Uh, it's very fast. Those are the big particles that you can see. When the rush of air comes through, obviously the idea is it's going to dislodge whatever the irritant is that's in your nose. Now, also in your nose are some openings. And specifically, there's an opening which is your nasolacrimal duct, which carries tears from your eyes down to your nose. Because you don't want tears streaming down your face. You want them to go away conveniently into your nose and you sniff them up and swallow them. So if you look in the inner lower surface of your eyelid, if you follow your lower eyelid round towards roughly where it meets your nose, you'll see there's a tiny black dot there and that's called a punctum. This is like your eye plug hole and tears run from the upper outer edge of your eye across your eyeball, collect in the middle there and go down that hole. It then goes down your nasolacrimal duct and into your nose. When a sneeze comes along at 100 miles an hour, big pressure wave, imagine what would happen if that duct stayed patent. All the stuff you're trying to blow out, all of the nasties, all the bogeys and that kind of thing, and the snot, mucus, to give it the proper term, would come flying not just out of your nose, but into your eyes. And this probably wouldn't be terribly good. It might give you infections. It would certainly jam up the duct and that wouldn't be good. So I think the reflexes evolved to make you screw up your eyes. In that way, you compress the duct closed and keep the pressure up in it so that all of the air then rushes out of your nose during the sneeze and stuff doesn't go up the wrong way. While we're on the subject of hay fever, I was wondering, why does it make your eyes itch? I have no self-control. I itch my eyes to death and then I feel like I've gone blind. What's going on? Well, what is an allergy? Well, when you have an allergy, your immune system has responded to the allergy which is usually a little bit of protein and pollen has got a lot of protein in it that's why bees go and get it actually because it's a good source of food for them and the pollen gets onto the antibody called an IgE antibody which is stuck onto cells called mast cells which are in all your tissues and they're there like depth charges or landmines they're there as a first defense the idea being that if something tries to get through your skin or get through your mucous membranes it triggers these mast cells off 
so that your immune system gets an early warning that something's trying to come in and it releases all these inflammatory signals saying to the rest of your immune system, come in and help me to defend this part of my body. But if you've got hay fever, instead of having antibodies, these IgE antibodies there, just to detect things like worms, parasites and other nasties, you've got antibodies there that unfortunately get triggered by pollen, which your body should ignore and should regard as innocuous. So the pollen floats into your eye lands on these antibodies, they send a signal into the mast cell and it then does what's called degranulate. It discharges this big welt of histamine and other chemicals that are inflammatory into the local area where the mast cell is sitting. This goes on to various things, including blood vessels, and blood vessels in response to histamine open up and this increases the blood flow through the area, making it swell and go red. It also triggers uh, there are very fine nerve fibres going through the tissue which specifically signal itch and they're activated by histamine. And the histamine from the mast cell causes the nerve, cell, nerve cells to start firing off. And so you, you sense this itchy sensation and you have this desperate urge to rub your eyes. You mustn't because the mast cells are also sensitive to being rubbed because if you squidge them and squeeze them, it makes them discharge more histamine. So if you rub your eyes, you will not only exacerbate the symptom you will make it much 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 worse because you will burst the pollen grains you will burst the mast cells and you will make your eye much more sore than if you were just able to resist the temptation and don't rub it so just to return to josh's question you cannot pop your eyes out by sneezing uh, because there's no physical connection between your airways and your eyes apart from that nasolacrimal duct which you probably screw up your eyes to stop yourself filling it with with bogies and mucus when you sneeze does that answer your question to your satisfaction, Georgia? So now you know you must leave your eyes alone. It's not going to help. I'm still going to itch my eyes like crazy. <laughs> Let's have another question from Dave, uh, Dave Zobel, who's with us. Dave, do you want to tell us about quantum entanglement? Because I've got this one here from <laughs> Will, who says, in quantum entanglement, how exactly are objects linked together? What's the force or the energy that's connecting them? Uh, quantum entanglement, which... Uh Albert Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance, or he actually used the German word for it, is uh, this concept that we really can't tell why it happens. We can say what happens. And it's a bit like some of the other things we've spoken about on this show already. Uh, if you have two particles that are created at the same instant by the same process, which can happen quite frequently, they can have certain properties that are identical but opposite. One of them is a property called spin, which has nothing to do with what we think of when we say the word spin, and that's why we call it spin. If those two particles are moved very far apart, but no one has measured their spin, then it's not just that they have spin that is unknown. They don't yet have any meaningful spin. It's not that they have spin zero. They just have no spin that we can speak of. If you then measure the spin of one of the particles, you will find that whatever it is, when you measure the spin of the other particle, it's the exact opposite. It's as if the two particles had spoken to each other and said, okay, he's about to measure me. I'm going to have spin plus one. You have spin minus one, right? Right. But in fact, that they can't communicate that way. And so we don't really know what's happening. And that, I think, is why Einstein used the German word for spooky. And I think Niels Bohr said, if you're not baffled by quantum mechanics, then you just didn't understand it. Zephyr, can you help us with Robert DeVos's question? Light moves slower when passing through glass. So how does it speed up again when it goes out of the glass and back into the air? So I'll have a go at this one. When it goes into the glass, it's moving slower. But also, because the frequency has to be the same, the same uh, waves have to be coming into the um, glass at the same rate as they're coming out. Otherwise, you've lost waves somewhere along the way. And it's changed colour. Mm. Um, and that's because wavelength has changed. So the energy of the light is to do with the wavelength of the light. So as it slows down, um, 
the energy gets higher, uh, the wavelength has shrunk. So the actual total amount of energy passing through the glass, uh, through some area of the glass, is exactly the same as it was going through the air. It's just moving at a slightly different speed. Thank you very much, Zephyr. Alpesh would like to ask you, Georgia, in the era of the dinosaurs, why was everything so big? Big animals, big birds, big insects and so on. To start with, the dinosaurs were around for hundreds of millions of years. And I know we think of the really exciting ones like um, Diplodocus and T-Rex, but actually a lot of animals around then weren't so big. So insects, their biggest time was around the Carboniferous period, which was actually a long time before the dinosaurs were around. And I think the, the largest animal that's ever recorded is, of course, the blue whale, and that's still around today. Saying that, though, a lot of dinosaurs did get very big. And there are several theories about why this might be. And the, the main reason is that the ecosystem could just support larger animals. And being big is often a really good idea. If, if you're competing for mates, it can help you to fight off the sort of smaller males. And if you're competing for food as well. And uh, one idea is that the plants that were, were around during the dinosaur times were quite tough and quite hard to eat. So for herbivores, it became quite a good idea to have longer guts so that they could process this food more easily. And so they could get bigger. And then, of course, the carnivores could get bigger as well. Another thing is to consider is that dinosaurs could have had less physical constraints on them from becoming bigger. So a problem with warm-blooded animals becoming really big is that they could overheat quite easily. And dinosaurs, it's not quite known for sure if they were warm-blooded or cold-blooded, but it's likely they were somewhere in between. So they wouldn't have had this constraint. And they also had quite efficient bird-like lungs, which meant that they could take in oxygen and distribute it around the body much more easily. There's actually um, a lot of evidence in the fossil record for really large mammals as well after the so-called era of the dinosaurs, after the dinosaurs went extinct and mammals began to become much more prevalent. There's also loads of what we call megafauna, really large animals. Um, there's some terrifying things, if you look it up, that existed in uh, North and South America and out in Australia and, and Africa as well. Um, and the reason we think these are no longer around is a combination of being overhunted by humans and also uh, a degree of climate change. Equally, did not humans go through a massive phase as well. I remember seeing uh, when I was in Johannesburg, I went to Witts University there. And this is the, the department that Raymond Dart worked in. And he was one of the people who was one of the big forefathers, you know, the godfather, if you like, of sort of paleoanthropology. And there are skeletons there of humans from maybe 300,000 years ago or so. And they would have made a pro basketballer looked like a dwarf. There are people there who were absolutely huge. And I asked Professor Lee Berger, who was showing me around, why did people evolve to get so big? Because the cost of growing to such a big size is extremely costly in the sense that you've got to have enormous amounts of energy to go into growth to get that big. You've got a huge body to maintain. It makes you easier as a target to hit, doesn't it? And he said, they got big because everyone got big. And if, if everyone's big, you've got to get big to defend yourself. Yeah, and it's interesting that these giant people aren't really around so much anymore. And it's because that one Not in of my case, <laughs> <laughs> because the few people like it, it's generally regarded as a as a disease now. I think, but you do get people, you know, topping seven feet, and like, huge people do still exist. They're just very rare. <laughs> Small people still exist, though. I'm an example of that. But being big, like you said, it's a cost, and also this is really obvious when you look at the fossil record when mass extinction events happen big animals are always the first to go because they're slower breeders it's easier for them to run out of food and if you look at the animals that are in danger today as well 
it's some of the most big ones. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and it's our science Q&A special. You ask the questions and we answer. If you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can find us on Facebook and you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Michael has a question for us on the phone. Hello, Michael. Hello. Sure. Uh, my question is about the importance of diet, exercise and detox versus drugs or supplements for mental clarity and focus. Uh, it's been a new wave that they talk about nootropics all the time. I wonder if you have an opinion on this. Okay, so the whole idea about what actually gives you a healthy brain and a healthy body and a healthy mind. And the bottom line is that that's what food is for. And everyone goes around saying, well, we should be taking vitamin tablets and we should be taking this supplement and that supplement. You have evolved over millions of years to obtain everything you need for a healthy body from the food that you eat. And you have evolved to obtain those nutrients in the context in which they're found in nature. In other words... You didn't evolve to get your vitamin C and vitamin E and your B12 and your folate from a pill. You evolved to absorb those nutrients in the tiny quantities and low concentrations that they are present in the foods that naturally contain them. And to put them into the body in a pill, we don't really have any evidence except in rare circumstances with rare diseases and rare cases of deficiency states where they really are valuable to give these supplements, there's not really any evidence that these things make a difference above and beyond if you just eat a healthy diet. And in fact, there was a big meta-analysis done uh, a few years ago. Um, Goran Bielikovich, who's a researcher at Copenhagen University, published a big paper where they looked at thousands of cases of people taking vitamin supplements or not, and they asked were these people taking the supplements healthier or not? And they in fact found evidence for a higher mortality rate in the people who were taking certain antioxidant vitamins like vitamin A and vitamin E compared with people who weren't taking those supplements. So what we can conclude from this is that As I was saying, food is the best source of micronutrients and as long as you have a healthy balanced diet and you don't have a deficiency state, this is probably the best way to be healthy. Trying to adjust that with special kinds of supplements is probably not useful for the average person. Now, if you are a performance athlete and you have particular demands and you're placing particular demands on your body or you have a particular disease, then this is different. But for the average person, a good healthy diet, which means a good balance between proteins, fats and carbohydrates, it means a good source of fibre in the diet and so on. All those things add up to making your body healthy. And if your body is healthy, your brain will be healthy because at the end of the day, your brain is your most precious organ. It's also your most metabolically hungry organ. Your brain burns off 20% of the energy that you get through any second. So the amount of energy being burned off in your brain is equivalent to a 20 watt light bulb running above your head. It's a very metabolically hungry organ, but it's living tissue and it runs on exactly the same cellular mechanisms and biochemistry that the rest of your body does. So it needs all the same things that the rest of your body does. So a healthy body does actually make a healthy brain. Now, let's hear a little bit more news. Zephyr, what have you brought in for us to hear about this week? Some fantastic news came through, I think, this morning to everyone, which is that Philae, the probe that is on the Rosetta mission uh, on a comet that we'd lost for the last few months has turned back on. I don't know how many people remember, but when it first hit the comet, the plan was to harpoon it and stay in place. And the harpoons may or may not have worked. They certainly didn't work fully because it bounced, almost enough that it was lost from the comet and settled back down in a deep, dark crater. And it's just now got, because the comet is orbiting the sun, 
and got far enough round that light is reaching the probe and it's turned back on and it's transmitting again. And this is fantastic because we weren't sure if this was going to happen or not. We were hopeful, but it's really gratifying to see and we will hopefully get all the data that the mission could have found back to Earth now. It's pretty impressive to have managed to land a tiny object on another tiny object so mm. far from home and that actually it is now sending that data back. What do they hope to learn about the comet that it's on? Why is it important that they've gone there? So the really important thing about comets is that most of the water on Earth, which obviously we wouldn't have life without, has come from comets. And working out kind of what form that water is in, uh, what other chemicals are in it, which could also be helping to make life, even possibly if there could be life on a comet itself. There are theories that life has come to Earth via a comet. And this will help us probe all these kinds of things, actually being there on a comet taking some readings. Sefa, thank you. Georgia, uh, Rob Ferone wonders, and he's from Singapore, he's written to chris at nakedscientist.com, how did insects evolve? Insects seem to be so different from other species, I find it hard to imagine they could possibly have evolved from the sea. Yeah, insects are very strange looking sometimes, but if you look across the whole animal kingdom, there's some really, really weird ones. Um, Look up water bears if you get a minute. They're some of the strangest creatures you'll ever see. There's also... What's one of those? Uh, water they're these tiny little creatures that can basically just survive anything they look like they look like something from a studio ghibli film they're like really really creepy tiny things but insects almost certainly are in the same tree of life as all other animals and the reason we know this is from things like dna sequencing and also from the fossil record insect fossils are very hard to come by but there are a few that look like transitions between insects and their close relatives the other arthropods Did insects come from a comet? Well, like you mentioned, Zephyr, there's the theory that all life came from a comet. Uh, This is panspermia. And this is an interesting debate. But if it did happen like this, it's likely that all life came this way. If a comet arrived now with some exciting new microbes on it, it's likely that the current biology of the planet would just gobble it up. And it's worth saying that um, they actually sent some uh, tardigrades, some water bears up into space, not really planning to get them back down. And they got them back down and found that they were fine. They'd uh, survived the vacuum of freezing cold space absolutely fine. Which Um, adds credibility to the idea that that life or life processes could potentially have transited between different bodies in the solar system. Let's stick with with the oceans and life and that kind of thing, because Jason Pierce is wondering, Max, this is a good one, do fish get thirsty? (laughs) The short answer is no. The long answer is that you've got to consider three different types of fish. You've got fish that live in freshwater and then fish that live in saltwater and then also in saltwater in the oceans, you've got a separate type of fish. So sharks and rays, they don't have bones, like all their entire skeletons made out of cartilage. So you've got these three groups. Freshwater fish don't actually drink at all. They absorb all the water they need through their gills. So they're fine. They don't ever get thirsty. Marine fish are what's called hypertonic to uh, the seawater. So essentially, they lose water through their gills to the seawater. The seawater is saltier than their blood. So they, in order to replenish that water, have to drink seawater and process the salts out. But they live in seawater constantly. They can drink whenever they like. So really, they're never going to get thirsty because they're going to drink tiny amounts of seawater as and when they need it and keep themselves topped up. Sharks and and rays are what's called isotonic with seawater. Their blood is exactly as salty as the water around them. All they need to do is adjust the iron concentrations in in blood. And so that all happens across their gills and other permeable memories. And they're fine. Can I chuck a spanner in the works? You can. What about fish like salmon that are born in freshwater 
uh, in a river. They go out into the sea, do their thing. Eels do this as well. And then they come back to the river they were born in to spawn. So How do they cope then? They're no exception either, but they just have very sophisticated gill membranes that can switch essentially from what is needed in a saltwater environment to what is needed in a freshwater environment. And the various uh, proteins and ion membranes involved in their gills will shuffle things around depending on which environment they're in. There is, however, one possible exception to the idea that fish don't get thirsty, and this is fish that breathe air. You may have heard of things like the lungfish, or the most uh, well-known one, I think, is mudskippers. They live in very, very uh, poorly oxygenated ponds, shallow, muddy ponds, and they actually breathe better with a very rudimentary lung that they have, and they crawl out of the water, splash around in the mud, and, and can breathe air for several days at a time. So in theory, they could spend long enough out of the water that they need to be driven back into the water by thirst. Uh, whether or not they feel thirsty starts to get into the realms of uh, animal consciousness. And uh, that's an entirely separate question. Thank you very much for that. Max, got a great question here from Abbas Danani, who says uh, to Chris at NakedScientist.com, if I stood on weighing scales while I was holding a big juicy burger, would my total weight change if I then ate the burger? What do we all think about that? Would your weight, Georgia, would your weight change if you ate the burger you were standing on the scales? I'll happily find out. I bring in some <laughs> scales and a burger and I'll take one for the team. I would argue that actually that the burger is already mass in your hand on the scales and therefore if you put it into your mouth it just turns into mass in your body. There would then be some metabolism, obviously, because you've got to exert some energy to work the muscles of mastication to chew up the burger and produce some saliva. You've got to warm your body, which means you're burning some energy doing that as well, and you presume the burger's going to be a bit lower than body temperature probably by the time you've done your experiment. So there's a bit of a loss of energy there, so you've got to make that energy up, so that means you're going to lose a little bit of mass. The metabolism that's going to carry on as you digest the burger as well, because you've got to break it down into its component parts and absorb it. So the, I reckon in the short term, no change. In the long term, there'd be a modest, small reduction in how, mass. How accurate are your bathroom scales? <laughs> well, that was going to be my bottom line, if you excuse the pun, because I was going to say that actually you'd be talking about trivialities, wouldn't you? I mean, once the burger goes in, the burger becomes part of you. There will be some losses to the toilet, though. And so a certain amount will be absorbed, a certain amount won't be absorbed. And so you, you won't get all of the energy turning into mass. But let's assume that none of the burger is wasted. It would all get converted either instantly into sugars that you would burn or fat that you would store. So your body mass would reflect the increase in uh, weight gain owing to the burger. Georgia. This one here from uh, William, who says on Facebook, who's found our Naked Scientist Facebook page, uh, why is incest an issue for some animals, but it's not an issue for others? Just explain the, the context of this and what he means. To start with, the reason incest is an issue is because of your DNA, which is your internal code. So your DNA is made from both parents. So half is from your mum, half is from your dad. And when these two pieces are put together, so every gene you have, for example, let's say my eye colour gene, I have one bit from my mum, one bit from my dad. Say my dad's one is a bit rubbish and codes for a bad eye, but my mum's is good, I'll still have a good eye. But then if, I don't know why I'm using myself as an example here, but then if I breed with someone from my family, they're likely to have the bad gene too. So when this assortment of genetics happens in the next generation, they're more likely to have two copies of this bad gene and therefore exhibit this terrible trait. 
And if you think about there's so many genes throughout your DNA, the chances of this happening are quite high. And another reason why incest is in general a bad idea for animals is because if populations have quite similar DNA, something like a disease can come along and wipe them all out because there's not enough diversity. So I was interested with this question and I did a little research because I had some pet mice and I remember they were meant to be all brothers. One of them was a sister and then suddenly I had hundreds of mice. So I remember thinking that they just didn't care. But apparently mice do care. They can actually smell whether they're related to each other. But if there's no other opportunities to mate with someone who's not related, they'll just take what they can get. So incest is an issue for pretty much all animals that breed sexually. Um, for the reasons I outlined. And most animals do have ways of telling if they're kin or males get chucked out of groups, so it's less likely to happen. I suppose it's worth mentioning that if plants don't have sex and exchange genes, and by this I'm thinking of plants like bananas, where they're all clones. If you look at where we get our banana plants from, a sucker comes up from the root or you get a cutting, you make a new plant, but it's genetically identical to the parent plant. And we've seen this with potatoes as well. They're all genetically clones of each other. All it takes is a pathogen or a bug to come in and it exploits or finds a loophole in the defences of this particular plant species and it just wipes out the population. And we saw this with the Irish potato famine where a fungus evolved the ability to attack a certain strain of potato. And now the banana is under threat, isn't it? Because we've seen the loss of the Gros Michel banana, which is a very sweet, very nice little banana, to Panama disease. And now the Cavendish banana, the big yellow ones we all buy in the supermarket that we're all very fond of, they're, they're under threat too, aren't they? For, for exactly this reason. So sex isn't just important to animals, it's important to plants too. Yep, anything that, that breeds sexually, which does include plants, although they might not look like they do. Pollen that we were talking about earlier is, is the male reproductive uh, gamete, isn't it? Yep, I'm allergic to plant sperm. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Max, one for you. John O'Donnell has got in touch and said, can animals sense danger? Uh, so John's in good company here. Uh, people have been asking this question apparently since the 4th century BC um, is the first recorded documentation of dogs being able to sense earthquakes in ancient Greece. When you say sense earthquakes, do you mean predict or almost presage well, their arrival? So this is the question that people have been asking and it's not really very clear. People think that dogs can sense earthquakes way before we can and then if we could somehow tap into that, uh, we might be able to predict earthquakes, which are notoriously difficult to predict. And so people have looked at this. People have looked at studies of, of dogs and other animals going missing. In I think it was in San Francisco before an earthquake in the 80s. And there was some anecdotal evidence that more animals go missing in the week before an earthquake. Then people have gone away and done the research into this and realised that actually the robustness of that claim is very weak indeed. But uh, in the early 2000s, somebody did actually get some concrete data about this, a man called Stanley Corrin, who was doing a completely separate study at the time about hearing in dogs, had a, a set of kennels with 200 plus dogs in. And then as an earthquake happened to happen, and he managed to get data on how many of those dogs responded in a certain time frame beforehand and it was a vast majority and most of the responded dogs, how barking or yeah they get very stressed they get nervous mostly barking whining hiding in the corner that kind of thing but some of the dogs didn't and it was mostly the dogs with that were in some way impaired in their hearing or dogs with big floppy ears that kind of uh, obstruct their their ears that way so it seems to be that dogs may have the ability to kind of hear the the deeper rumblings that, that precede an earthquake However, 
that's not really going to be very useful diagnostically. We have this one piece of evidence. There's, you know, again, more anecdotal evidence about it. Uh, maybe cows appear to uh, reduce their milk production slightly before an earthquake. Sharks migrate away to deeper water before tropical storms, which seems to be based on a prediction due to the, the lowering of atmospheric pressure. But we have much better ways of measuring that through meteorology. And so all of this kind of stuff is is very, very anecdotal. So we don't really have the evidence. Uh, and even if we did, is it in any way useful? You can't really use a kennel of 200 dogs as an earthquake predictor. It's a little bit inhumane. And you can't tell for sure. I mean, most animals are aversive to things they're not familiar with. They don't like new... Uh, sensations, new sounds, loud noises, uh, unfamiliar smells, anything. They, it's, it's called novophobia, the fear of the new. And this is present in most animals. So there's no way we would know whether it's a prediction of a natural disaster or whether you know something unfamiliar and pungent happened to be nearby that was entirely harmless to us. I've heard novas are quite good cars, but there we are. There's another question for you here, Chris. Uh, this is from Julian in Norwich. He wants to know... How do greenhouse gases cause the Earth to heat up? He says, I wouldn't expect a very thin gas to be any good at insulating. So how do greenhouse gases have an effect on a global scale? OK, one has to first of all think about why does the Earth have any kind of temperature in the first place? Well, energy comes to the Earth from the sun. It does that in the form of heat given out by the sun, which is invisible light, infrared, and also visible light, because light is energy. That light reaches the Earth, it hits everything on the Earth and the energy in the light is absorbed by the things it hits and those things, because they now have more energy, have a higher temperature. What normally happens is that the energy is then re-radiated as long wavelength infrared light back into space. So what comes in goes out and the Earth stays stable. But if something gets in the way of that re-radiation back into space, then the amount of energy in the system goes up. In other words, the temperature goes up. And it turns out that certain gases in the atmosphere are very good, actually, at interacting with long-wavelength infrared light. Things like carbon dioxide, things like water, are very good at doing that. So the rays of infrared come bouncing off the Earth's surface and off of you, going skywards, but they see a molecule of carbon dioxide, and the bonds in that molecule soak up the energy and stop it going skywards. And as a result, you retain more of the heat close to the ground, which means that the things on the ground are more likely to stay warmer. In other words, the overall global temperature has gone up by just a tiny amount, but it's a significant amount in energy terms over a long period of time. And therefore, you will begin to shift the balance of energy distribution on the planet because the temperature is on average higher. So just a tiny whiff of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and some more water will make a difference on a global scale. That's really surprising. I would never expect water in the atmosphere to make this kind of a difference. Water is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. And in fact, everyone maligns greenhouse gases. But remember that greenhouse gases are good too, because were it not for our atmosphere, were it not for the ability of water to retain heat in the atmosphere and carbon dioxide, then we wouldn't be on a watery, warm planet Earth. We would be on snowball Earth. And it's down to the fact that we have this atmosphere that does retain some of the energy and it keeps Earth cushioned and cocooned at a higher temperature temperature than it would otherwise be, that we do have this lovely balmy environment that's ideal for us to live in. So we do need a greenhouse effect, but we don't want to exacerbate or exaggerate the greenhouse effect in an uncontrolled way, because that means the environment that has kept us, nurtured us, nourished us, will begin to go off kilter, and that could have unforeseen consequences. Zephyr, um, 
Patrick is wondering what happens if something gets sucked into a black hole. Oh, that's a very difficult question. You see, black holes. Well, what a black hole is is an object that's just so heavy that light itself can't escape from it. Now, we're often told that light isn't affected by gravity. The amount of gravity, the amount of mass needed to actually affect light, is huge. But black holes are the remnants of massive stars that have collapsed into a very small space, and they're so dense, so heavy that even light cannot escape. What actually happens when something passes, what we call the event horizon, the uh, distance away from the uh, actual body which light can't escape from, is very, very unclear, and we may never know, because it's impossible for anything that we send through past that point to ever come back, because light, the fastest travelling thing, even that cannot escape. Likely it wouldn't be a particularly pleasant process, even as you approached it, you'd get stretched and stretched and stretched. Would you Would you feel that, though? Would Would you actually feel yourself being pulled? Depending on how fast you approach the black hole, you might be pulled kind of string thin. Oh, You might wow. be completely would, torn. And over what time scale would, would it take as, as you felt yourself this... Because fo- literally you're feeling a force on your legs. It would be like being put on a medieval rack then. Is that what you're saying? You would literally feel yourself being drawn out? Yes. The quicker you go into the black hole, the better it is for you in the process of going <laughs> in because it, the quicker you go in the less stretching the less time there is to stretch so a really but, agonizing approach would be a really slow journey into the black hole so mm, you, you yeah mm, that if you spiraled around for years and years <laughs> you'd slowly get longer and longer <laughs> and then what would happen then this is where it gets really unclear because there are things like at the center of a black hole it doesn't seem like there's any force to stop the mass at the center collapsing more and more and more And so you'd expect the density at the centre to go up and up and up faster and faster and faster and become infinite. And that must be impossible because if there was infinite density, it would have an infinite force and everything, everywhere in the universe would be sucked in. So we're very unclear on what exactly is stopping that happening in the centre of a black hole. There are theories even that time must slow down and stop at that centre so that we can't reach this infinite density. Talking of time, we've run right out of it. That's the end of the programme. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our panellists, who are Max Gray, Zephyr Panoia and Georgia Mills. My name's Chris Smith. And The Naked Scientist, which you've been listening to, comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the STFC and the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.